Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Today's guest is going to be interesting and informative to all fraud fighters, whether you work on the financial services like fintech and banking side or within e-commerce and card not present. Not only because he has experience working with both types of companies and preventing and understanding fraud that targets the products ranging from designer clothes and electronics to bank accounts and Zelle transfers, but also because the conversation we had today is going to be applicable to everyone. My guest today is Eric Rainsberg. I got to know Eric well when he was the director of fraud strategy and analytics for Macy's and Bloomingdale's for several years. He then became the senior vice president and director of fraud strategy and analytics at Huntington National Bank. And then he was promoted to the senior vice president and director role of security operational analytics. He will explain a lot more about what he did in those roles in just a few minutes. And if I'm being honest, I feel really bad that I kind of lost touch with Eric when he moved to the banking side. It was never intentional. We've been friends for over 10 years. And as you'll hear, I actually kind of forgot. But remember now that I was the first person to ask him to speak at a conference. And as you will quickly learn, he was very good, as I knew he would be uh, on stage a few different conferences that I ran the content and educational programming for. So this was such a great conversation to be able to catch up with my friend and also get to learn what he's been up to the last few years. And again, being honest, I was surprised at how good and thought provoking this conversation was for me. It's not that I'm surprised that I learned something from talking to Eric because I always have. Uh, He's really been at the forefront of several things throughout fraud, He's kind of been one of those people that I've pointed to over the years of, hey, this is how we should be thinking about this. Hey, this is how we should be doing this. And I'll talk more about those details in our conversation. You know, when he was on the merchant side, he was definitely one of those people that I wanted to put on stage because I knew he had things that could really help inspire other fraud leaders. And he did. So within this conversation, we talked about his role at Macy's and a few of his really groundbreaking accomplishments for Macy's and Bloomingdale's, and especially their in-store card security, as well as their dot-com fraud strategies from the beginning. Uh, Then we talked about his transition to banking and the differences and similarities from retail, especially when it comes to data analytics and how that's able to inform the strategy. But then, and this is where I just got so excited that honestly, after we had this conversation, I texted another friend of mine in fraud and said, I never would have thought that I need to make this introduction. But after having this conversation with Eric, I really think you need to know him. And so I think that a lot of you will feel that way once you get to the end of this. Uh, And of course, I have his uh, link to his LinkedIn in the show notes for today's episode. So then I got to learn about the exciting and pretty much revolutionary projects that Eric spearheaded while he was at Huntington National Bank. 
This conversation really got me thinking about the possibilities and the future of fraud fighting for large organizations, especially if you consider to build a central risk intelligence agency, supporting all products and business units within an entire organization. It's honestly not something I had thought of before, but now I think it should be best practice for enterprise e-com as well as large banking organizations and fintechs. And you'll see why. I mean, I probably would have had a different opinion if you just would have told me about the idea on the top line, but hearing Eric talk about it and some of the things that it was able to accomplish and the way it was able to support all areas of the business was really interesting and eye-opening to me. So I have no doubt that you're going to enjoy this conversation with my friend, Eric Rainsberg. Welcome back to the Fraudology Podcast. I am so happy to have someone who has not been on this podcast since the very, very beginning. And I'm so grateful to him that he uh, came on the podcast when uh, Fraudology was just starting out. And uh, we kind of lost touch for a little bit and you'll you'll learn why uh, pretty soon. But I'm so glad to have him back and get to learn what he's learned and what he's been doing for the last few years. So Eric Rainsberg, welcome back to Fraudology. Thanks, Chris. I'm I'm very excited to be back. And you and I have known each other for well over a decade. And I'm just so grateful to all the fun people, just the great people in this industry that I get to know over the years. And when you were at Macy's, uh, we got to know each other fairly well uh, in my role for the publication and the conferences. And I got to see you do a lot of big things in working with a a longtime retailer, bringing them to the tech space and bringing them to, you know, e-commerce from a risk and a a fraud perspective. So if you could actually start off by talking a little bit about what you did at Macy's, uh, and then we'll talk a bit about where you went after that. Sure. Um, Yeah, we've known each other quite a while. I'm I'm almost positive you gave me my first speaking opportunity at a conference as well. So love to do those. and, And I appreciate you giving me that chance. But yeah, Macy's, I started there and on the fraud team, um, essentially spent most of my, my about decade there in various fraud roles, moving up from uh, the fraud technology side of supporting an application that the team used, uh, working with the operations teams to um, ensure that the necessary support structure was there, along with leading teams that would pull, understand, and analyze data related to operations and losses. Grew into uh, more of a strategy role as I developed there, um, working card issuance and store strategy from a transactional side, um, both the Macy's and Bloomingdale's cards, uh, along with um, acceptance of gift cards and uh, third-party, you know, MasterCard Visa branded cards too. Um, so learned a lot about uh, developing fraud strategy and, and more around building that strategy out um, and allowing ourselves to be uh, accountable for that strategy. And then um, I moved out and then actually supported their launch of chip cards, which was uh, an interesting endeavor as uh, going way back then to when chip cards were brought into the States, um, the nervousness that we had. So nervousness as consumers, nervousness as retailers, um, nervousness as card issuers of, of you know, how is this going to work? You know, are customers willing to stand there for an extra two to three seconds waiting for that card to approve? 
and then making sure that they were probably put in. So, so that was pretty cool to, to kind of help Mason Bloomingdale's put that in place. And then it kind of turned uh, back into fraud because, you know, as, as you know, Carice, we, we go back into fraud because it's something we love and then something that just continues to pull us back in. And it started to grow so much too. I mean, after, you know, after chips were initiated into stores, then we saw such a huge burst in card not present because obviously it was much harder to counterfeit cards at the store level anymore. So then, you know, I think you were pulled back because you love it but also because you were needed too because all of a sudden okay we got this fire calmed down in stores but now you know it's pushing it's that balloon that we talk about right when you squeeze it on one side it goes somewhere else it's almost like i created a problem that i had to go solve myself yeah (laughs) Yeah. Um, brought the cards (laughs) over secured them better and, and pushed all of those we'll even say more technology or technically adept um, bad actors into a different space. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, moved over there and, and, and spent uh, about five years, I think, uh, leading the uh, Enterprise Fraud Strategy and Analytics Group there, focused on some some in stores, but, but a lot of the e-commerce world. So working on improving the way that we identify fraud, working at uh, the way that we built rules in the initial uh, instances, and, and then even kind of called out the opportunity to grow as a fraud team and become a little more modern. So we brought in a more new tech company back then. It was extremely new and extremely risky. But we brought in a company that um, essentially turned the way that Macy's looked at fraud around. Um, and even really cool was we did it leading up to holiday season. And I had a, a guy on my team who I will forever be indebted to because he spent the better part of three months head down coding to build the infrastructure for us to do this leading up to Black Friday, leading up to holiday season, because we were essentially trying to get this business cape built during the holiday season, um, before the holiday season, I should say. And that turned around, I think, somewhere um, recaptured sales in, in, you know, what we'll say clean seven figures, likely near eight figures of recaptured sales during the holiday season, which is wow. just fantastic. Because those sales were being canceled due to fraud with a rule system, right? Correct. The rule system, yeah. and, and I would even add the, the policy, the rigidity of policies it had. So mm-hmm. it, it wasn't even for, for bad decisions by any means. It was because our policies were structured a certain way and, and the team members were following them. Yeah. You, know, you had to ramp up for holiday season. You had to build teams to scale at the time. Because again, we're going back years ago where that's what teams did, right? As you yeah. shrink down during nine months of the year and then you hire up and then you shrink down again. So you have this influx of people that have to follow policy. So it was a great use case and it was it was used to expand and, and modernize the way that we did fraud. Did that for a while, expanded that from kind of the where, where it was built back end and we moved it up into the front end and essentially um, weaned ourselves out of rules and, and into more of the technology AI ML front end which really led our team to pivot from more of a reactive analysis of what happened, why did it happen, what can we do to make sure it doesn't happen again, to more um, insight and and I'll even call it accountability-focused analysis of how are things doing, where do we need to look, what's next, and even in some cases, talking about accountability is going to our partners, our new vendors, and, and, and holding them accountable for their decisions. You know, they're doing well, they're doing great, but we can all do better. Right. So where can we have them focus? Where can they help improve? So we, we became more of, of um, kind of pushing messages out instead of reacting to messages coming to us. So yeah, 
did that at Macy's for about five years, uh, had a blast, loved the team, loved the structure, loved the ability to kind of take this large company um, and, and help modernize it. Not that it wasn't already heading in that direction, but kind of being at the helm of kind of continuing to push it forward. Well, and I remember, you know, in those times, just how good you got at making business cases. And that that was something that I really saw you as a thought leader for at the time and, and still do, but you were really one of the first people that I got to know on the e-com side that was really good at you know taking the data that you had and making a business case for moving forward. And it can be a challenge for companies that aren't tech first, uh, that aren't you know digital first companies to be able, because there's just so much data, but they're archaic systems and, you know, some are in DOS and then how do they talk to each other because they didn't have APIs and, you know, all this just, it, there's a lot of technical things that you have to figure out and just, you know, the logistics of it all, but then also, you know, had to get good and you got really good at explaining things that, you know, to us in fraud, we often want to go into the details and we want to you know, nerd out and talk about, you know, ATO spikes here and this and that, whatever, but talking to the business that doesn't understand those, that verbiage and doesn't understand those things, but why it matters to them and getting them to care because there are still companies of similar sizes or, you know, maybe a little smaller as Macy's that, you know, 10 years later are still trying to make that transition from, you know, a legacy rule system to something that's, you know, a little more proactive and, you know, relying on, machine learning and custom rule, uh, custom models and, um, you know, more of that full service solution rather than a tool. So you were really one of the people at the forefront of that before everyone else realized that they had to figure that out too. <laughs> yeah. I, I would even kind of add to that is, is the groundwork started even before the first business case was thought up. You know, it was building partnerships with cybersecurity or technical teams. It was getting involved in projects earlier on. Um, I think, you know, years ago we had the conversation on the podcast, but I'm pretty sure I talked about the fact that fraud is, can, can be seen as an inhibitor to progress because they're usually not thought of until fraud realizes, some, you know, a new product is launching or something's going on and they have to raise their hand and say, hey, there's a potential risk here we need to think about. If, if we get farther and farther upstream, we move to the left, then that conversation is a lot more, um, as in a conversation, the, the project is built with that in mind. So getting those partnerships, even, you know, having conversations with the customer service team, you know, thinking about where fraud potentially or the, the fraud process can impact customers, impact teams, impact externally or internally, and, and trying to just be part of the conversation with them. So I built a lot of partnerships, and, and I should say my team and I built a lot of partnerships with a lot of internal folks that, that were a lot easier to talk to when I came with the business case, because... We had a good relationship. We had open dialogues about things that we could do better as a fraud team or things that we saw as a fraud team that we could potentially help them with. So, you know, coming with an idea and not just an idea, but an idea structured uh, as a business case of this is to your point, this is what this can do to you. That became a lot easier. So you're, you're right. I, I think it, it is obviously this data piece, uh, but there's this front end piece of ensuring that the partnership is there. A lot of what we do is getting our foot in that door. That can be the biggest challenge. And if we're working on that for months, weeks, years, or whatever it may be in front of it, then that part becomes a lot easier and you can focus on the message you want of here's what we want to do. Here's what we need. Here's the potential benefit that you may get out of this. You know, it may improve the customer experience. It may lower losses. It may increase sales. It may shorten the time that a customer is sitting waiting for 
their confirmation or their delivery because we can get it through our cycle faster. It may improve the chargeback process because customers are no longer getting notifications of stuff that they didn't receive because it's being forwarded to whatever. Uh, there, there's a lot of different potential areas where if framed appropriately, the customer, I'm sorry, not the customer, the teams can understand the benefit for them. And you're no longer going out to secure buy-in. You're building advocates that are going to help you go and secure the funding or secure the change that you're trying to look for. And that is exactly why I remember asking you to speak at a conference, uh, <laughs> because you understood how to speak that language and how to tell others in our space, you know, who often we care so much about the details and that's where we want to focus, you know, to say, well, yeah, I get that this is what we care about. But if you translate that into customer experience for customer service, or you look at the KPIs and you know the goals of other teams, and you become a partner to them, and you build that credibility with them, and they know that you're going to help make them look good, and that you have similar goals, that your goal is not to reduce sales, your goal is to reduce you know, the wrong sales, right? The fraudulent sales, the ones that are going to hurt the company at a two or three X multiplier. And once I'm so glad that you brought it back to partnerships, because that is the first step of you know, building those partnerships. And I've been guilty in my past life when I you know worked on the front lines of feeling like, well, I'll build my credibility as I go. I just need to you know cram these things down <laughs> their throats. And uh, that doesn't work out well. And, you know, wanting to having a vision of being more proactive, being more, you know, upstream in conversations when there's going to be a new product or a new, you know, business model, rather than finding out at the last minute and having to figure out how you can reactively change this project or this product to not just give away the farm, so to speak, being able to have those conversations and building them up when they happen, that should be everyone's goal because it makes our job so much easier, but it also helps the business understand the importance and the role. And then all of a sudden you're being brought into so many more conversations and you even realize we're ha being had. Yeah. I, I, you talked about the goal of fraud is, is reducing you know, losses or we're here to help them reduce their losses. I would add to that. Our, our goal is, is more around ensuring that they're able to attain their goals. You know, a couple examples I have is we brought on a product that was a very low margin, very high cost, but brand wise, it, it, it kind of helped lift up our brand and brought more customers to the site. So rather than just saying, and it was also high risk, it was an electronic site. So rather than just saying, oh, we're going to go ahead and be extremely restrictive here, you know, I went to the product team and understood what they were trying to do. You know, is this something that we know we're going to potentially have a negative return on because of the potential customer impacts upstream or downstream, right? We're going to gain more customers or, you know, this one average cart has two or three more items that are high margin that are going to help. So what is this product's goal? What is the addition here? It, or is it because we want to, you know, we have a thin margin, we need that thin margin, then that conversation becomes around how we build the strategy to manage that. You know, our, our goal is is obviously to reduce losses, but it's it's also to reduce losses and manage the risk to the level that broadly the company and even you know more more specifically the product teams want to get to. You know, we have this one high mar you know low margin product that high cost that in that case we were okay having you know a slightly negative return on it if it led to whatever. So the strategy was built around allowing a little more risk there, allowing potentially more fraud, but 
in, in enabling other sales. On the other side, you know, there may be a high margin item that it was more of an entry item to other things, or it was more of a high margin item that we wanted to get more customers. That one, they were more open to, to essentially, you know, I wouldn't say open the floodgates. They they didn't want add much friction at all because this was extremely profitable and they were willing to take more losses. So so building the strategy around that became more around managing to the goals that that team has, and and, and that can have you know different levels. Right, you can get down to the product level, you can get to, get to a category level, you know, or you can get down to the company level, depending on what you have and how you get to those levels. To, to what you talked about in the details is that data. You know, getting to the right level of data that you can have those conversations and part of what the challenge was, especially in, in, in the retail world, was that access. How do we get to that data? And and part of what I was, you know, trying to push for while I was at Macy's was getting to that right level because the more data you can get to, the more access you can get, the better conversations, the more surgical you can be in your strategies. And I say that and and again, you know, we were able to get to a lot of Macy's. It was me just continuing to want more and do better. But the more data you get to that has what you need and, and, and the specific areas you're trying to focus on, the better you're going to be in building your strategy. So true. And I think anyone who's listened to this podcast, when I'm geeking out with other friends that are in fraud strategy, like last week I had Matt Vega, who uh, has done fraud strategy for all different uh, types of companies in fintech, whether it's in crypto or others. And, uh, you know, is that I love strategy, but you're so right that the data needs to inform the strategy. And so does the goal. because. I like the fact that you you kind of pushed back and said it's not just about reducing losses. It's about aligning the strategy with the goals of the product team or the, you know, whoever is leading this initiative, right? And I noticed that even when working with, whether I'm working with an e-commerce company that, you know, was a startup and is now in hyper growth or a solution provider that is saying, hey, we don't care as much about the monetization as much as we do having adoption, right? And so looking at it and saying, well, is your goal to have more users? Is your goal, you know, where are you in your growth of a company? And then you're getting granular within the specific projects or, or product launches and saying, okay, well, for this, what is the goal? Do you want to have, I mean, is it a factor of it's a really low margin, but it's a high risk. So we're going to lose a lot when there's fraud. So we need to kind of be a lot more, you know, scrutinizing of these orders to make sure that we're not going to lose as much because the profit margin is so thin, uh, which when I worked for uh, an online travel agency, that's the way it was. Uh, there was just a very small flat fee that they would make for every uh, flight that was purchased. But whenever there was you know, if there was a chargeback on a $5,000 flight, they were responsible for those $5,000, even though all that came to their bottom line was like 15 or 20 bucks for that flight, no matter how much it cost. So same kind of thing, right? Or is it, you know what, these items, we make a pretty good healthy profit margin on, and this is how we're going to help, or we're going to have a promotion for people who open an account with us, right? And we're going to give them a higher promo code or whatever it is. You know, you're enabling the business to do what it needs to and being able to ebb and flow. And maybe in one direction, you're being, you know, when you have a, a more tech focused strategy and the data is informing it, and then especially when you have a more tech focused tool that is able to be more dynamic uh, and not just, you know, rigid and, and all or nothing, then you can start to deploy multiple strategies at multiple times and make every team that you work with happy. And that's always the goal. 
that that's, that's the goal. Yeah, I, I think that that's dead on. We worked a lot on building those partnerships and, and building that relationship with those teams so we can have those conversations. They need to trust that you're going to do the right thing for them. And in order to get that trust, you have to have that relationship. You have to show that you've been able to do it before. Um, and even going back to your point about the details, right, is you, you need to be able to show you know your stuff. So whether it be walking them through the customer experience, this is what happens. This is what we do. Talking them through the technology at some level. This is what we do. Or introducing them to your technology partners. In some cases, here's so-and-so from, from this group. This is the one that leads our team that supports us, that provides our fraud support. And, and having that conversation, building that trust. I, I think size and scale can, can change as far as company goes. You may or may not be able to do that. But being able to build that trust is going to allow you down the road to help them and allow them to allow you to help them, I guess. Help them help you. Help them. I was just going to say that. It's like that quote from Jerry Maguire, right? Like, help me help you. Um, I feel like that's really what a good leader in the fraud space is doing on a regular basis is building those partnerships with all other groups that will interact with them, but also that they can impact too. And, you know, hey, I can be your best friend or your worst enemy. I'd rather be your best friend. Um, I'd rather, you know, do and be able to show you how I can help you. And wow, you know, we have access to things, you know, maybe through uh, a vendor partner or, you know, something else, or, you know, we were looking at this data and this helps us identify the risk, but it also might help you identify opportunities for, you know, something right before they check out at their cart, right? Like to add an extra item or two and suggest other items, or it might, you know, if we identify that this person is who they say they are and they are a high margin individual, why not, you know, be able to upsell? Um, so being able to enable them. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but SPEC's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. SPEC lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of SPEC's Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. So like you said, you had a really good tenure at Macy's and did some pretty remarkable things that are you know really still in effect now uh, and I have the pleasure of knowing a lot of the people that worked for you at the time and that are still there and there are just some really great people on that team and I know just it speaks so highly of you and really enjoyed working with you uh, and then in mid 2020 I I think we were talking about like how quickly you had to pivot due to COVID because of um contactless pickup like that was such a new thing I think when you came on the podcast the last time and I really want to find that episode for some reason um at least on my end couldn't find uh earlier episodes of the podcast so if anyone else is looking I'm trying to figure that out and we'll hopefully have a link in the in the show notes for you but I remember that was such a new concept and you were just having to like pivot on your feet. And as you were doing all of that, I think you would also kind of come to the realization that you wanted more, you wanted to stretch yourself and you wanted to grow more and uh, go into a different area of fraud. And so um, maybe share what you what you did next. Yeah. So 
I, I think you're, you're right. I think the time I had at Macy's was great. And I think we built a really good thing there. And, and I was just looking for that next challenge. Um, had an opportunity to move over to the banking world. Uh, worked at uh, uh, Huntington Bank in their enterprise fraud strategy team as they were in the midst of, of building that up. Was able to do uh, some similar stuff there um, as far as building more of the infrastructure around it because it was new. So how do we look at strategy? You know, How do we identify losses? You know, Banking and, and retail or merchant world are obviously extremely different in, in, in pluses and minuses. Uh, you know, we started with availability of data was so much better, which, which definitely helps in, in a lot of conversations. But as you know, in the banking world, there's a lot of regulatory um, constraints that are on you because this is customers' livelihoods you're working on. This is money. This is potentially more impactful at an at a, you know, individual level. So it was an interesting challenge. We, we built up you know, more of an infrastructure around how we evaluate products, how we look at kind of going back to our earlier conversation is when, you know, the fraud team or when the security team is brought into a launch of a new product in the banking world, trying to get farther and farther up, upstream on that. And, and, and the team there now is actually continuing to do that and, and, and kind of built that even, even more up than, than when, when, when I first started it. But uh, how do we how we become part of this part of this conversation? So sitting in a lot of the product conversations, um, building out essentially a product overview from a loss side. You know, this is the new product you're launching. You're going to give customers this. These are the potential you know risk areas we need to talk about mitigating. The benefit from the fraud side, and, and um, I kind of talk about it in this way, the differences between retail and, and banking is risk is extremely a sensitive area because of the regulatory needs and the need to protect the customers. So those conversations became a little easier in that changes were possible and then controls or, or, or you know, risk mitigants were able to be put in place, but it doesn't mean you didn't want to justify it and explain what was happening. So building out those proposals of you're making this change, here's what you're projecting as far as revenue or whatever maybe they're looking at, here are the potential loss impacts that this may have. Here's what we can do to put in place and, and essentially giving them a range of what they could do. You know, we could be going back to the conversation now about return. Um, we could be extremely rigid because it's a low return. It's not really building a lot of customers. It's really just an add on that our good customers are going to use appropriately. Um, so we're going to go ahead and put, you know, some rigid constraints on this. Um, the other side is this is for new customers. You know, we're trying to build, we're trying to grow. We need to make sure that customer experience is as seamless as possible. And this is the side that we're going to do, but we need to be able to accept as much loss. And, and, and there's some level of comfort there. So we build these proposals for these these product teams. And, and what was really nice about it is it was built the way that they would be able to make the decision on their own and accept their losses. So if they were to some level uh, or they were willing to take some level of risk, they knew what that expected loss would be. And we were able to provide them with the appropriate level of risk mitigants and also going to the data side of things, we were able to actually report back to them the actual loss of their impact. So one of the things that we did at, at Huntington that I was really proud of was standing up a lot of these loss-specific areas. So um, in Huntington or in banking in general, there, there's obviously a lot of different areas or, or potential areas of loss. You know, there's different transaction types. There's different impact or, or different exchanges with customers where losses could occur. So being able to explain all of those different areas where those losses were and normalizing those was something that we were able to do. So, you know, in the merchant world, right, we, we know that loss per transaction or loss per dollar sales, or you, you tend to talk in this normalized KPI. 
In the banking world, they did it some aspects, but more at a broader level. You know, how much are we losing per customer or per deposit or per accounts? So, so there was this this some some sort of generalized normalization, but it, it seemed to be broader. It seemed to be we were talking more in in areas where maybe that wasn't as impactful as as digging deeper into it. And, and this is not all banking, right? A, a lot of banks have it different ways, and a lot of banks are are, are much um, we'll say more mature in the way that they're measuring now. But where we were at, it was you know a lot broader. And, and the focus that I brought in was getting down to those different levels. So if I was talking about a wire transaction, um, it was a lot easier to talk about a wire transaction when you're you know, normalizing it against total wires or total wire dollars. Now, scale is weird because of just large values, but being able to normalize it in some way and provide some sort of comfort for growth and, and, and some sort of scalability for growth so that we can talk about our risks as we grow as an institution, or we can talk about change as we grow as an institution. So wires and, and cards, deposits, ACHs, whatever, maybe Zelle, talking about those individually, talk, when I talk more about being able to get to the product level, very similar, talking about those in a scaled down approach, we were able to be more, more surgical at how we would identify and talk about losses. We could share losses with the teams that were, were more impacted as well. So we built a lot of that out, kind of centralized that. We, we had much broader and um, you know more specific conversation as well with the broader stakeholders of fraud. So we were able to kind of present, this is what we're doing. These are the losses that are occurring. This is what it really means when you scale it out. Um, so as the bank grew or as you know, we brought on another institution, that changes obviously the, the total denominator. But if we're talking as a normalized number, it becomes a little easier to have that conversation. So we brought that out and had much you know stronger conversations, built better partnerships with those teams that were stakeholders because we had the right numbers, the right data. We were sharing this information proactively. So built that out in Huntington. Um, I, I will say you know the data was a lot easier to attain. And in, in transparency, I don't think it was because the data was just easily available. I think there was just a lot of good work done before I got there to get that data places that we could get to. So less about the differences being between you know banking and, and merchant world of, of data accessibility, which is extremely important, but more around the power of having that data at your hands, you know, being able to get to that and start driving towards um, product level conversations of these are potential losses, or even talking at a loss level conversation of here's what it looks like, here's what you're doing, here's what the losses are. It made it for a much easier um, conversation. We we're talking about to product owners about their new products, or we're talking to stakeholders about the benefits that you know the fraud team may be providing, or the areas that we need to focus in risk mitigation. So we stood that up there. Also centralized a lot of the reporting, which was very good too, because as we centralized. Um, the reporting that came from the fraud team previously when, when fraud was reported, it could have came from different areas. So one team may be reporting on their own fraud, other stuff may be coming from fraud. There was an inconsistency there, more of a risk of inconsistency, I should say, of not having potentially the same information. So centralizing that, putting a team out there that would report that out, it allowed us to, to one, understand what was happening at a much broader level. It allowed us to build those partnerships with those teams because those teams now had, a, you know, at minimum a face or an email that they would receive information from, they would they would have some local comfort there. So now it was coming from fraud. We were taking ownership of our metrics. And then built that out and, and about a year and a half ago, which is about a year and a half into that role, um, had the opportunity to join a broader analytics team over security. So that team, um, security analytics and innovation, the goal was fairly broad. It was to provide all of Huntington security, the support, the analytical support, to empower the teams to do better. And, and I'm being 
broad. The innovation piece was also really cool because there was going to be a way to structure out innovation. How do we allow ourselves time to really ensure that we are innovating the way we do things? Because innovation isn't just that epiphany that may happen. Um, a lot of it has to be structured. You know, you have to ask the right questions. You have to have the right people in the room. It's, it's really around structuring the way that you think about things or brainstorm with people that are going to allow those new ideas that we can capture and we can push. So part of the team was analysis for security. The other part was how do we drive and improve and become more innovative as a security organization? Um, my role in particular was around the operational analytics. So that was, um, basically how do we ensure that operationally teams are more efficient? So whether that be through policy procedures, whether that be through operational metrics, whether that be through how we use models to enhance or drive or, or reduce losses or, or reduce risk. So we did a lot of that. So what are our controls? How well do our controls work? How are they improving the way that we do business in organization? Process mapping. How do we map processes out? How do we quantify the process? You know, how do we essentially follow things down a path to say, where are the bottlenecks? Where are the opportunities that we need to think about? And then kind of layering on to that, what are we doing in each case? So policies and procedures, steps, times, all that kind of stuff. That team uh, kind of stood that up, built that structure out and had a great opportunity there to do, um, take that and, and push it forward. So partnering with teams to um, identify where they can become more efficient, working with the model risk teams to say, how do we quantify how well a model is doing? And this is probably, you know, a little more banking side of the world, but there's a lot of risk in a lot of areas because of the, you know, because of the concerns. And one of the areas that's relatively new is around models. And, and model is a very vague term, uh, or I should say a very broad term. It, it could be something all the way from AIML, which is probably the first thing you think of when you hear models, all the way to how are you calculating your losses? Or how are you, um, what formula are you using to determine your projections? That's a model. That, that's essentially a calculation that is providing some level of benefit. And I'm, I'm probably butchering the actual definition, but, but essentially, um, anything that you're doing there could be determined a model. So how do we build the maturity of us as an organization that has models to ensure that we have the right level of risk mitigation? And even kind of from my side is how do we ensure these models are effective? You know, are they adding value? What value are they adding? Are they deteriorating? Um, you know, and, and in the model world, you know, there, there's ways that, you know, things may need more training. They may need a reevaluation and a calculation, whatever it may be. Are, are they not as effective as before? So, so how are those metrics being used? And I think that's more kind of where I'm trying to get to here is the importance of data and metrics. You know, what metrics are you using? What are your KPIs? What are your KRIs? How are you quantifying the benefit, the impact? of whatever you're doing. So the operational side of things, how are you ensuring that your your process makes sense? How are you ensuring that you are reducing losses, reducing risk? From the model side of things, how do you ensure that this is actually adding value? You know, what is that value? How are you adding it? And, you know, the, even thinking longer term going to the business case, the better this is built, the easier it is to have conversations around change or growth because you can point to something that's already out there. This metric is doing this and it's starting to increase or this is starting to change. What do we do about that? How do we make the change? And then that's going to fold into the business case to change that you may have that's driven by a very specific KPI or KRI that you've built and bought it and have bought it. Wow. So many things that I want to touch on in there, but it sounds like, especially in the role, both roles that you had at Huntington, that it was almost like an advisory or like an internal consultant role where you were you weren't necessarily working 
on the front lines of operations and, you know, making the decisions day to day that need to be made on, you know, does this account, you know, need to have more structure around it? You know, you weren't on the account level or on the transaction level, you were more higher level and being able to provide some performance metrics to each group and also provide the ability to look to the future and say, how can we make this better? How can we innovate this? Just similar to what you did at Macy's using data to be able to tell a story and then to be able to say, well, what could we do to make this better? What is the end goal? How can we improve this? And to be able to provide that to multiple groups in multiple ways, you know, slicing it in different ways for different types of fraud or different products within banking um, was probably such a gift to other stakeholders within the business because oftentimes when you're, we know this because we both have been on the front lines, when you're firefighting, you don't have time to talk about, well, how should we prevent a fire like this in the future? Or how can we be better at putting out this fire next time? You're just focused on the fire that's in front of you. But if you have someone that's able to kind of, you know, look at if I'm really going to exhaust this analogy, like drone footage or, you know, zoom out further and be able to say, wait, actually, you know, what could we do on a policy level that would make it so that this fire wouldn't have even started in the first place? Or what can we do, you know, on a the ability to be alerted that this is happening and that there's smoke before it gets too big. You know, what what were those warning signs? How can we do it better? And then be able to provide that to them. And that's, I think that's a goal that, uh, at least on the e-commerce side, you know, a lot of times it's a luxury that you don't have because risk isn't, there aren't those regulations that say, you know, hey, you do need you need to care about risk you and that justifies the you know the spend or justifies the headcount to do that you know you're constantly having to wear a bazillion hats and you know really kind of now I'm really switching analogies but you know screwing the wings on an airplane at 30,000 feet up in the air and so you know you're doing those types of things but you don't have the luxury of being able to have a group to turn to and say okay well what could we have done better when we rolled out this product or you know what could we do to your end goal is to retain more customers what could we have done better to retain more of our clients? And then in a separate conversation, and what can this team over here do? What levers and controls are in place and what can be done to be able to reduce friction to bring on more customers? And so there's different goals of different businesses, but you're really providing that insight and that intelligence. I mean, I actually wrote down, um, you know, when you said it kind of provided like, you know, centralized data, I wrote down that it was like centralized intelligence agency, not not the CIA and the way that we think about it in the US, but more like the central nervous system and this ability to have all this intelligence in one spot and be able to use it for so many different purposes. Yeah, I think intelligence is, is a great word to use. We talked about that at Huntington quite a bit as we were building our team is the end goal was to take everything we were doing and turn it into intelligence products. So, you know, hey, you know, card world, this is what it looks like on the risk side or identity team. Uh, this is what it looks like from your side. You know, this is the intelligence product. This is what's happening to you. This is why it's happening to you. This is what's happening outside of our four walls that may be impactful. You may need to think about. And here are recommendations, potential outcomes that you may have. So, so building that that level of intelligence. The other piece that you kind of talked about as well that I think is, is kind of interesting to point out is business intelligence tends to be an area where this could potentially help. And business intelligence, even going back to what I talked about models, is also can be a broadly used term. You know, in some teams, business intelligence is the reporting group. 
you're going to provide me with the information I tell you, you I, I want to help run my team. And that is an extremely valuable thing that's needed. Um, in some cases, they're the dashboard team. You know, I want my stuff in a place where I can go to on a daily basis that gives me exactly what I need in a way that I am comfortable with in a pretty way or in a way that just is helpful. Um, that also is a really extremely, extremely useful way to understand and help run your business. And is probably a function of business intelligence. But business intelligence is even expanding beyond that of how do I take all the information, all the data that's out there and turn it into something that becomes more actionable for those end users. It's not just something that tells them how they're doing. It tells them where they should be focused today or where their areas of opportunities are in a way that they understand and a metric that they find um, they're able to digest and act on. So it could be metric. It could be um, content insights. Um, in a perfect world, business intelligence is that data, those metrics with a true data analysis done on top of it that gives those appropriate insights into what they're seeing. You know, a, a team, you know, an operations leader or a fraud leader is going to know what their KPIs and KRIs are, and they're going to know when, when things shift or deviate that it's something they need to act on. Um, that business intelligence team tells them that as early as they can, but also tells them where they need to act. So if my, you know, handle time or my productivity of my team is changing, you know, that that leader of that operation group may go and start diving into that metric to say, okay, why is this happening? What metric is failing me? Um, is it a policy? Is it a procedure? Is it, you know, new staff? Is it training? What What's happening? The business intelligence team has that there. You know, here's a deterioration. Here are the drivers of that. You know, we're seeing the lower performers have, you know, a lower tenure and that percentage of total uh, users is much bigger. Um, I'm giving a very easy answer because I'm looking for an easy answer. But that's the kind of stuff the business intelligence can provide is that that insight saves that leader four or five conversations and, and hours, if not days, depending on data of work. Now I know I need to go focus on my newer users. I hired a bunch of people and, you know, the operations leaders are probably nodding their head like, of course, I know I'm going to hire new people. My productivity is going to drop. I'm already focused there. And, and it's a simple answer. But that type of stuff, that type of insights should be given as part of that conversation. Here's what you need to focus on. Or here's the areas where you can point your team that's going to allow them to become uh, that much quicker to the solution. Um, and even in a business intelligence world, the solution would be nice to have an outset. But even those additional layers of insight are going to allow them to focus a little better. Yeah, 100%. I think that because, you know, as you said, if you're in operations, or, you know, you're really fighting the battle, or, you know, you're, or you're in leadership, or whatever that is, whatever your KPIs are, you can ask someone else, hey, this is the data I want to see in a report. And this is what it's going to tell me. And that is super helpful. And sometimes that is where a company is. If I could just get someone to pull, find this data and pull it and be able to, you know, give it to me in the way that I need it, then that's going to help me make my next decision. But if you have the ability to have another team who understands what the data, what each piece of the data is and how it relates to each other, then you can actually have that team pull it for you and they know which metrics you need and which baseline you need for the next three decisions. But then what information you also need for the next, you know, the 10 after that. And what are those early signs that can say, okay, we're seeing indicators that our clients are actually preferring 
know, they're using this tool in a different way than we thought that they would, or they're asking for this. And so we need, and this looks risky, but it's actually not. So we need to you know, look at this in a different way. It's telling you the things that you don't know to look for because you're so inside. It's the forest and the trees, right? Like you can only see the trees right in front of you. You can't see the forest. So I'm going to go way back to, and I don't want to get down a rabbit hole here too much, but when, when you and I were having conversations years ago, and, and I think Diana was probably part of it at that point as well around returns fraud. <laughs> yeah, you were part of the, yep, the early group with Diana and myself, and there were a couple other big uh, retailers that were on those calls. Yeah, I actually just mentioned those calls and returns fraud on uh, Tuesday's episode. So you're, yeah, that's a good callback. It's not that far as far as the podcast, because it's now, I mean, louder than ever. But back then we were just piecing together what is happening. And I remember the challenges there. And then the business intelligence kind of circling back was taking all these data, all these different places, because return losses, as you know, don't go to the same place and starting to build that story that I can put in front of the right people to say, hey, we clearly have an issue here because we have all this coming back that we didn't have before. And there are clearly trends and commonalities that tell me something's happening. And it's been so long, I, I couldn't even get into the specifics that I wanted to. But I, I know business intelligence and the ability to take all that data and not just push out a report because that's what they were doing before saying, here's what we were, were funding or here's what we were accommodating. And turning that into something that actually was insightful to say, okay, yeah, we're accommodating more. Yeah, the shift was more online because we expect this. So I don't know if it's really that much that we need to worry about. It's just, you know, cost of doing business. When in reality, it was potentially the tip of the spear of what we're seeing next. Yeah, a hundred percent. And there wasn't, at the beginning, there wasn't any data, right? I mean, one easy, well, not easy, but low level you know, thing to point to is that at the time it was just one big and this was for the bigger companies. I know there are some you know, medium-sized companies that still have this issue where there was just one big bucket of returns or refunds, really, I should say, not items being returned, but refunds being given. And it took a lot of effort for companies and for fraud managers to even know, okay, what are the refunds that are tied to items we got back? And then within that, what are the refunds that are tied to the items we got back and we were able to sell again? And the items we got back and that we had to damage out. Then what are the refunds for the items that we didn't get back? And what were all those reasons? And you have to start breaking it up into those pieces to then be able to get even further, you know, more granular in oh, wait, we have way more people claiming that they the item never arrived than we ever could have. But you don't, and then why did that spike so quickly in just a few months? Was it because you know more people are ordering online? Well, yeah, but is that trajectory the same, you know, at the same curve as the growth online? Well, no, actually, all of a sudden we have, you know, 50% more people saying, oh, it didn't come because they realize that they can say that and get their money back and keep the product. Okay, well, now what do we, you know, now we need to dive into that. So it's such a good real world example for, you know, e-commerce of how that can work. But I think, you know, there's a lot of people in banking that listen to the podcast too, that I think the model that you built as far as providing those analytics and just the how much more insights can come, you know, and obviously it's building blocks, right? You have to build the partnerships, you need to build the data access, you need to be able to build and put on the right people with the right skills and the right data, you know, aggregators and, and products or technology to be able to kind of slice and dice it as you need to. But then once you have that in place, giving different business 
units the ability to detect it from a risk perspective, because a lot of other areas in the business have something similar, you know, whether it's a central intelligence piece for business intelligence, for marketing or for sales, but we haven't gotten as advanced as we need to on the risk side. And I think that that's so inspiring that that's something that has been created and could be created. And actually, as you talk, is making me think of, you know, someone I know on the more fintech and financial services side that has been building a hypothesis around, you know, knowing that some tech first companies have all the data, but they don't know how to read the, not just the tea leaves, but how to interpret it or what data pieces go together to be able to determine, oh, we're going to have, you know, a a drop in people paying their bills after month five, you know, or we're having this happen or that happen. And what are those indicators? And that that's a hypothesis that they're building within their company of that. And so it's once again, your uh, thought leader on that as far as getting that together. And I think, gosh, there's just so many things we could go down on that one too. But I wanted to just get back to, you know, what you're doing now. And we know that changes happen in workplaces and that, uh, you know, while there was so much, there can be so much benefit and value in teams as well as in individual contributors and leaders uh, within companies that, you know, sometimes the market happens and decisions have to be made and uh, it's a numbers game. So, um, you know, I know that recently um, there was a reduction in force that occurred at the bank and that you were, you were impacted. And I mean, it's hard for me to put my personal opinions aside because I'm like, what were you thinking? Um, but you know, I, I have the benefit of getting to know a lot of people in this space and kind of similarly to, as what you were talking about with using data and the data I'm using is just the conversations I have with people and going, wow, that person really knows a lot or they're a visionary and be, they're able to see that vision and then execute on that vision, which is a skill set that not everyone has. Um, and they're able to take analytics and strategy and be able to, you know, interpret them together, which again, not something everyone has. So I personally think that, you know, the the decision made there was maybe, you know, short-sighted, but could be a benefit to another company or organization because you have these pretty big accomplishments under your belt and you've learned so much at both places of, you know, what a good future state can be. I, I appreciate the words. I, I understand the business reason why they why they made the change and and, and I Regardless of my opinion, it was a decision. They, they had two choices. They did it. There's a way they continue down the path. And I really hope they do because there's a lot of work that we did that's going to be extremely beneficial if they continue. And that, that's really the hope that I have is a lot of the work that we did continues to grow. That's one of the really cool things that I've, I've been able to look back on. And, and we had a conversation earlier around Macy's. Um, that team continues to flourish. And it's a lot of people that I work with. And, and I love the fact that they're, you know, stepping in on their own. They're, they're finding their voices. They're being successful. They're building on, on the work done because if, if it was the same as when I left, that would be a problem. You know, that's not growing as I know that team can do. So again, I, I just hope that, that things continue to grow as, as I, I've kind of built what I could. Um, in the same respect, I'm definitely um, very excited about what could come because, you know, like you said, there's uh, a lot of ideas, a lot of potential um, that, that I, I feel like we could do um, as an organization wherever I may end up. And, and I, I love the idea of kind of taking that seed and just pushing it forward and, and, and letting it grow and, and, and building something out. So, um, yeah, as, as disappointing as it is, it's extremely exciting for, for that new challenge. And you know, fraud keeps pulling me back. So as I said, I kind of stepped away into kind of the broader security space and that was really cool. But 
But again, I'm back and I'm, I'm, you know, thinking more about what can I do in the fraud world and, and how can I continue to hopefully evolve the way that we look at fraud as an organization, as an industry, especially. And, and just to add to that, this has been really interesting to me and fun to me because I haven't had an opportunity to speak to, to groups in a while. And this is one of the, the fun things that I got to do in, in the fraud space was speak in, in conferences or webinars or um, even on your podcast before and, and share a lot of what I've learned. In the same respect, you know, get a lot back from others as, as the dialogue continues outside of this. And that's exactly why I wanted to have you on the podcast, especially before the end of the year, is that I've learned so much from you know, asking you to speak. And you, know, you and I can have a quick conversation about, oh, what are you up to now? And then when we get into this kind of dialogue, I learn so much about, oh, yeah, I can see that applied here or there. And that's the same thing with people who listen to the podcast. I think that's why Virology has become successful is because it can be really helpful just to listen to other people and be inspired and take that the nugget of information and apply it to, you know, what you're working on now. And just because so many people are reinventing the wheel and knowing, okay, well, actually we don't have to reinvent it. We can just improve upon it. And, oh, I hadn't thought of that before about having, even if it's just one or two people that are the central hub of, you know, reporting and data and yes, they can do spit out the reports that we asked them for, but then we can give them some autonomy and say, what else are we not looking at? What do we need to know? I think that's such a good takeaway for any type of organization, whether it's in e-commerce or it's in fintech or it's, you know, a financial institution, all of those things, because we as a fraud industry, and then also at the organization level, have to keep growing and adapting and learning as much as we can, because that other side is never going to stop. And so we have to do as much as we can. And that's why pushing it forward is so important. And this podcast, I would say, is one of those really strong tools that that I've seen out there. And it's not just because you're providing a lot of great information, because you are. But I think the other benefit that others may get out of this is the willingness of people to share their insights. You know, we're not out here trying to keep our secrets. We're not each other's enemies. We're, we're trying to help each other. So, so you showcasing individuals' ability um, and willingness to share their experience, share their knowledge, and, and provide those insights, um, I, I would say, and I probably would argue, that's probably even more powerful than even some of the specific things that people are getting out of this. Yeah. And that's why I put, you know, a link to everyone's LinkedIn in the show notes. Um, you know, so just like uh, with you, I'll make sure that there's a spot in the show notes where people can, uh, you know, connect with you on LinkedIn and, and continue the conversation. And that's my favorite part about the podcast. I mean, I love every part of it, but my favorite part is, you know, a few weeks or a few months down the road, learning about the ripple effects, right? Like, oh, I got to meet this person. And now you know, we had a great conversation and I never knew this or, you know, hey, I learned about an opportunity that I wouldn't have known otherwise because I was on the podcast or, you know, whatever that is. I also really enjoy hearing from, you know, people in other parts of the ecosystem, whether it's the vendor side or the card brand side or, you know, just works in a different department, you know, or it's, you know, whatever that is, you know, econ banking, wherever saying, oh, you know, I hadn't ever really thought about their perspective before, or I hadn't thought about that. And I learned, you know, this and that, like those, yeah, continuing it and having, I always say, I want to have this be a two-way conversation, or, you know, not just me speaking at, to people, but, you know, back and I don't always get to reply to everything, but I just, I love, you know, reading everything that 
it set in as far as sometimes there's takeaways that it was just an afterthought, right? I just kind of said something and they're like, wow, I really latched onto this. And, you know, we've now changed the name of our department because, you know, you posed a lot of thoughts about why are we calling ourselves fraud prevention? Shouldn't we be revenue intake um, or whatever that is? Um, I mean, I still say fraud for shorthand because I think I always will, but, but, you know, being intentional about that focus. So yeah, it's, it's fun for me. And, you know, we come from a time when we got to do this once a year where we got to learn from each other once a year. And that's still important. And there's still our conferences, but the vision of the podcast was let's have these conversations year round. And, you know, people can listen to them whenever they need to get inspired or they, you know, want an idea or they want to just know that they're not the only ones that care about fraud as deeply as they do within their organization. Like sometimes just having that (laughs) camaraderie can be really helpful. (laughs) It's good to know you're not alone in those cases. The illness is shared amongst many of us. The illness. Yes. Yes. The illness and the passion. I think it's, you know, it's a little bit of all, all of the above there, but that's something that I hear most from people who especially, you know, started out in their company and kind of fell into fraud by accident, you know, where they're like, Oh my gosh, it was so nice to just know that I'm not the only one that cares about this stuff as much because inside my company, I'm the only one that cares this much. Uh, and I have been that person and it, you know, you still have that passion and you're still going to drive forward, but it can be kind of lonely sometimes. So it's nice to know like, no, no, we're, this is an illness that's shared with a lot of us and that you're in really good company. Cause I personally think that we have some of the smartest people in our industry and I'm so lucky to get to know and, you know, have known so many over the years. And it's crazy how our kids get older and, you know, our, our hair gets a little more gray and all that, but we still um, will always have those bonds of, you know, caring about this so much and wanting to always learn more. Well, thank you again so much for making time for this conversation and uh, just for, you know, sharing with me what you learned in your most recent chapter. It's actually given me some really interesting thoughts about really what that next step can look like for a fraud organization, you know, within a company. And I am just really excited to learn what the ripple effects are from this conversation. And uh, we'll definitely stay in touch and I'll make sure that uh, everyone will know how to get a hold of you. And I'll look forward to hopefully uh, touching base more in the new year in 2024. It'd be great to learn where you land and what you're working on next. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the time. And and like I said, love talking about this. I'm happy to happy to share. Absolutely. Like guys. Well, awesome. Have a good rest of the holiday season and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.